1910, Theodore Roosevelt was president of the United States. Kaiser William II ruled in Germany. Nicholas II was Tsar of Russia, and the centuries-old Manchu dynasty reigned in China. The British Empire proudly boasted that Britannia ruled the waves. In 1910, our country consisted of only 45 states. Oklahoma, Arizona, and New Mexico had not yet been admitted to statehood. The telephone had reached the rural areas, but only in the most progressive communities. Movies had just appeared and were called Nickelodeons. Admission was five cents. There were no radios, televisions, or jukeboxes. The little talking machines with the famous dog listening to his master's voice were the new attraction in the village store. The Wright brothers had just begun their experiments with the flying machine. The kerosene lamp was still the chief dispenser of light in the darkness, and only the larger cities were illuminated with gas lamps. The lamplighter, on his little horse-drawn two-wheeled cart, was a familiar spectacle in the evening hours of every city. There were no paved roads in the United States, no road maps, no road markers, and no filling stations. The first automobiles had made their appearance, but they were still a rare curiosity and the expensive luxury of the few. People traveled by horse and buggy, and the younger set on bicycles, which made it possible for them to travel as far as five or six miles from home on a Sunday afternoon. Women's dresses always reached to the ankles or below. Anything less than that would have been cause for scandal. Beauty parlors, lipstick, bobbed hair, and bathing beauties were unknown. The 10-hour working day was standard. The barn dance, quilting parties, and the 4th of July picnics were the big social events in every rural community. The small town was the center of American life, and the village store with post office attached the gathering place for the men of leisure and the town philosophers on the long winter evenings. The ring of the blacksmith's anvil was familiar music in every hamlet. The country was prosperous and not involved in any entangling alliances with other countries. There were no wars or rumors of war, and no American soldier was stationed on foreign soil. People were not troubled in that world with fear of war or terrified by bombs and super bombs. The horrible instruments of destruction of our time did not even exist in the morbid imagination of the horror story writer of that day. People were peaceful, neighborly, sociable. They worked hard, were frugal and simple in their lives. Heart trouble and stomach ulcers and nervous diseases were not known. Alfred Raywinkle. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz to talk about Alfred Raywinkle. Adam, how are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. How is the weather in Fort Wayne? It'll probably cover both of us. <laughs> yeah, so I'm ahead. about to. Uh, yeah, this is very exciting. Uh, I am about to be washed away. My garage is wet. Uh, my whole world is wet right now. It's been raining for I don't know how long. It never ends. The harvest has begun here, but now it is raining. Um, The basement, uh, you know, actually the basement, I need to go check and see if it's flooding, but I'll do that after we record the podcast. I never, I never had to do so much uh, sump pump foo as I have here. And so yeah, it is raining. Uh, Hopefully it'll dry out. They'll get the rest of the corn in and then we'll begin on the devil's legume so they can get that out of the field and it will go into anything and everything. Right. That's right. We should do an, an episode on uh, on soybeans one day and just lose the entire Midwest audience. <laughs> I know. I, there are some topics we are avoiding out of sheer cowardice. That might be one of them. <laughs> right. But one we're not avoiding is a potentially controversial figure, although a mostly based figure. <laughs> you know, uh, thus proving that no man is perfect, Reverend Alfred Raywinkle. So why are we, why talk about him? Yeah, we're talking about him because he connects uh, very naturally to a figure we talked about a little while back, Herman Otten. Herman Otten was, uh, his company, Christian News Incorporated, was the publisher of a very interesting biography of Ray Winkle called Light, Salt, 
and Signs of the Times that was published back in the 90s, but which when it was in production, uh, Pastor Otten read uh, to his children on uh, a car vacation. So uh, they are driving because that's yeah. That's how awesome the man was. Yeah, maybe so, maybe so. But yeah, they 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 were personally connected. I believe that Ray Winkle was uh, on the faculty at Concordia St. Louis when Otten was a student. But Otten obviously had a, a deep regard for Ray Winkle. And so that's how I came to who he was. But then once you discover the things he was interested in in the course of his life, it has an interest all its own. Yeah, it's um, it's a name that has perhaps been a bit forgotten, and oh, yeah. that's that's what we do here at Word Fitly uh, in some episodes. <laughs> that's right. Like uh, you know, bringing back Big Bill Dahlman. And we're that's gonna, right. Uh, Ray Winkle is one that you might not know the name, but if you're in any congregation of a certain age, you have a copy of The Flood tucked away in your church library somewhere. You do. Yeah, yeah. It, and, it's one and, you always see. Yeah, and it's it is it, it comes out um, in a time when. Uh, what's now called creation science is not really that that big, um, even yeah. among Bible believing Christians. So he's a name that is still to some extent known beyond Lutheranism. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get a little bit, uh, you know, more into that a little bit later in in the episode. But let's talk about who he is, where he yeah. comes from, how he rises up. Yeah, um, his parents <laughs> immigrated from Germany, and his father was a Missouri Synod pastor in northern Wisconsin. And that setting is not as maybe bucolic as people imagine, because German immigrant communities would often be divided um, between Lutherans and Catholics. I think people are familiar with that idea, but also between believing Christians of of any kind and then uh, unbelievers, especially politically organized ones. So his upbringing is is in a parsonage, um, I think maybe two different congregations, but it is fairly tumultuous in the difficulty that his father faces, not so much from the congregations as from the, I mean, for lack of a better word, the Marxists who are organized around the, you know, miners and loggers and, and day laborers in the area, among other German immigrants. So this is, I think, foundational to Ray Winkle's politics later in his life is that he grows up under personal threats to his father by communists. Yeah. And let's talk about that a little bit because, um, so this is going to be late 1800s that Ray right. Winkle's born. Yeah. He's born in 1887. Yep. Yeah. And almost makes it to 1980. It's a good run. Uh, <laughs> he sees a lot of interesting stuff. He does. So what you have are people going around mining camps, things like that, but also and this extends up until at least the war periods is uh, they're, they're going around to even farming communities and yeah. trying to organize. Right. And then if Raywinkle's a boy, they're probably proto wobblies, you know, cause I don't think yeah. we have official wobblies until the early 1900s, 1905, right. yeah. something like I think yeah. 1905 is their official IWW founding. Um, that's something that we, we forget how broad they are, that they're actually going out into those areas. And maybe, maybe I'm just being a bit myopic here. But we both kind of have that problem of being from coal country where you tend to only associate those movements with eastern coal, those kinds of things. Right. But they're actually coming out of big cities in the Midwest or larger cities as well. So not only New York, like in the east, but you have Chicago, things like yeah. that. Yeah. They're coming and uh, it you just never hear that. You hear or organizing in the coal fields, but it's a foreign concept to us that these organizers – would be going around to farms and trying to organize those workers. Right. And similar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because and then, they want to unite all workers. They do. Right. And so uh, logging camps are going to be big. Right. Exactly. Where, where he grows up. And it, it, it's sort of like the fact that CFW Walther has an entire treatise against communism and socialism that really could not have been written by a, a native born American because it's just not live in American politics in the 19th century as an option. But if you're an immigrant or Ray Winkle is born in America, but he's living among immigrants, then communism and socialism are very live options. Right. 
And yeah, they're trying to organize those things um, among Germans, Scandinavians, et cetera. So Lutherans are sort of, <laughs> uh, their, their ethnic group is sort of bringing these problems here. But for that reason, they're also better acquainted with, <laughs> with those problems right. than native-born Americans. Yeah. Well, what would have been some of the problems? I mean, other than the violence that is associated yeah. with these early days, what, what would be some of the ethical problems outside of that? One of the big difficulties that the church has are uh, physical threats, both to the building and to the congregation, but also to his father. So there is a story that Ray Winkle tells in his memoirs, which have not been published. I'm getting this from Ron Stelzer's book about him that that, that Otten published, um, is that people saw his father walking home one night, accompanied by this very large man walking by his side, very large, very imposing. And they assumed that Pastor Raywinkle was in great danger from this man. When they told him this, Alfred Raywinkle's father said, no, there was no one with me. And they said, are you sure? We saw him. He was huge. We all saw him. He said, that must have been one of God's angels protecting me. And so there is, there is a kind of a fear I mean, it's very bucolic where Ray Winkle grows up. It's it's fairly sparsely populated. And the picture that you heard painted in the intro is one that's true for, he wrote that in accord with the year of his ordination, 1910, but it's true for his boyhood too, even more so. Nonetheless, the major worries that they have are opposition to religion, which is spread from convinced Marxists to other Germans who should be in a Lutheran church on a Sunday. And then in addition to that, uh, the threat, especially to his father's life and his father believed that God's angels were in a very lively way watching over him. Mm -hmm. And we'll get a little bit later in the episode a bit uh, more into why Christians would oppose communism and socialism, why right. Ray Winkle is just going, is going to write these books later. Um, and it's not going to simply be because I was threatened, although... Right. I mean, my point is, there's an ideological point, there, but he has he has skin in the game because right. of his upbringing. Yeah, the way other people wouldn't. It's not merely just an armchair philosophy. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's it's. I would say it's existential for the church. Yeah, and it, and it was biographically, and therefore he's going to realize it is ideologically as well. It's not. He's not sitting there, you know, kind of reading von Mises and saying my opposition <laughs> to communism is grounded on, you know, my understanding of like the, you know, the theory of value or something, you know. Logging into his hotmail looking for that uh, Lou Rockwell update <laughs> right. for the day. Right. Yeah. He's checking LouRockwell.com and, you know, and getting his natural health advice at the same time. Not that I'm acquainted with that or anything. But <laughs> Yeah, it's not really abstract. It's that um, in his boyhood, he grows up with communism as an existential threat uh, to Christ and, and Christ's people. Right. Um, and all that said, though, uh, listening to his description of this pre-World War I childhood of a, of a time that is long gone and yeah. may never return. So let's pick up there then uh, from his boyhood. Where does he go from there? Yeah, he's going to go through the system. Um, as sons of pastors pretty much always did. So that will end with seminary in St. Louis. Um, so this is prior to the First World War. During that time, he will develop in a way that I think is going to be key for a lot of what we're going to say in this episode, which is he develops, he develops what was probably all, always there, which is a very independent streak of mind. And that is largely because he learns a lot about both himself and also what it what it means to to preach the gospel to every creature, because he's on a long, irregular, what we would now call a vicarage in Wyoming. So if you if you think about Wyoming now, <laughs> it is very sparsely populated. Uh, it's large. Uh, there aren't a lot of people there. Imagine Wyoming in say 1907. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where he goes. And vicarage at the time was not as it is now a normal part of being a seminarian. It was out of a need that the church had and people would just be sort of sent off and then come back whenever. And this is a commonality in a lot of the most colorful characters in the Missouri Synod, Ray Winkle, 
uh, Bertolt von Schenk, um, Bill Dahlman. This happens when he's sent into the Ozarks for his first call. Would you that, say those who don't possess the rigidity of mind? Yeah, yeah, this, guy, yeah. The uh, right something of a meme in Lutheran history. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, the so Missouri the, history. I mean, that's right. Yeah. So the what what the Wawatosa guys would identify as Geistesstarre, this kind of yeah rigidity of spirit of mind. That it's really easy to stay sort of inside the bounds in your thinking when you are in, you know, somewhere near the Mississippi River Valley in the Midwest. And remember that the Missouri Synod is, a, is actually a fairly urban denomination, certainly relative to a lot of other Lutheran denominations. That is, we've always had plenty of farmers, but we also had big churches in places like Detroit and Chicago and, of course, St. Louis. Right. So there's a certain settled world in those places that where and it's bizarre to me to think that Cleveland was part of that settled Cleveland world. Cleveland was a big part of that, yeah. <laughs> We've yeah. come so far. That's right. And so, but once you leave that, that's going to affect your thinking. Um, right. And that still happens if you're in sort of the horseshoe of the U.S. around the Midwest, but not but not in the Midwest. Yeah, I think people when I think people misunderstand what's being said here too because they think that we're saying. Not in Von Schenk's case, maybe, but but not in the case of <laughs> Ray Wiggle and Dahlman, that they're not going outside of biblical doctrine here. Right. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah. And uh, it, maybe we should, I don't know, we'll, maybe we'll step into those waters and kind of further outline sure. that someday. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's not like, oh, well, we're going to do open communion because we're in, you know, whatever, Alabama or... Oregon. Yeah. yeah we, we do things different down here. That's that's not what we're talking right, about. There's a right. there's a looseness of mind. What would be the opposite of a rigidity of mind? Uh, a uh, Suppleness. Suppleness. Be, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because what, what happens on this... on this, I mean, he he's essentially turns into a sort of spiritual cowboy. He has to ride around and find people and gather them. And he'll gather them into barns, he'll gather them into saloons, he'll gather them into schools and post offices. And that's how he has to sort of start or keep churches going. And that's what he's doing. And this is really all working basically through preaching and personal acquaintance because he's a vicar, so he's not doing communion. Right. We know that, right? So yeah, we're not talking about like heterodox practice. We're saying like what changes is one's mind when you get outside the bounds of anything that anyone who was an authority beforehand, say back in St. Louis, told you was the case. And you realize they haven't had to ride around. Right. <laughs> like I did. Franz Tieper never they, did yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't know, need to know how to talk to real people, regular right. people. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's um, his life has actually changed when he's riding around because at one point he there's like a big storm. And he, <laughs> stop me if you've heard this before. Yeah, there's right? a big storm, but it's not it's not in, you know, cornland. So there's a big storm and he he his horse kind of is startled and pitches over pitches on top of him and pins him between barbed wire and the horse. And so the barbed wire enters his leg. And very... this is where he begins to hate modernism. Right. Because it invented barbed wire. Right. It right. tamed the prairie. So, That's right. Go yeah. on. And so um, the barbed wire enters his leg. So he gets the horse off him, um, extricates himself from the barbed wire, but has this you know enormous gash in his leg, very deep. He rides and finds the only doctor available who is a woman doctor taking care of her orphaned, I think, nieces, two of them. Um, this is Dr. Bessie Effner, who is a Methodist. And they will get to know each other as he recuperates for, I think, about a month near her offices in the closest town. I can't recall which town in Wyoming it is, but... At the end of this, he will promise to keep writing her when he goes back to St. Louis. And upon his graduation from the seminary, he will marry her. Yeah, so it's he actually the most romantic Lutheran story ever. <laughs> they, they, they try to gaslight you at the synodical museums with Walter's love letters. But trust me, this is much better. <laughs> well, and I mean, if you, if you want to look at sort of the, the psychological dynamics here, um, <laughs> he does not indicate overwhelming interest and she becomes frustrated at his apparent lack of interest. It's what we call game. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's how it went. And so in, by 1910, he's going to be married shortly. He's ordained. 
And because of his experience in Wyoming, he is sent to something that is still part of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod in 1910, which is Alberta, which is sort of Canada's version of the frontier. And there he will have to deal with all different kinds of people, but the work will largely be the same. He'll be based out of Edmonton, but he's traveling constantly. His house in Edmonton, their house, is now a historic site, actually. I don't know. I don't think I'll ever be allowed to go to Canada again, but <laughs> <laughs> but if I did, that's what I would go see, Banff National Park and the Ray Winkle Parsonage. But that's what he's going to do for the next uh, roughly 20 years. In the course of that time, he's going to get into some studies we'll talk about in the next segment, but he's going to do a ton of things, start and keep a bunch of churches going. He's going to found what becomes Concordia Edmonton, um, which has now been secularized, sadly, um, but was simply another place to prepare church workers to be sent off to St. Louis for seminary. He does an enormous amount. He's an extremely energetic man. He's also an advocate really for German speaking Lutherans, because at the time of the first world war, it becomes extremely difficult for him to even keep his churches open because they're under suspicion of being subversive. So if you, I mean, there's, there's really way too much that he did just in the time before he came back to the U S was a college president and a seminary professor. Um, I would recommend the Stelzer biography and maybe we can put it in the show notes, but I think, I think one of the things to understand about him biographically is how much his mind is changed by realizing that if he doesn't do things for himself, like get himself out from between the barbed wire and the horse or start the church himself or start the college himself, nobody will because a consistent refrain of his time in Canada is we don't pay our pastors enough. We expect too much of them. So we shouldn't be surprised when they leave that because because all of this is so far away from that sort of center of gravity in 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 our church's life you know not to be harsh about it but nobody cares and he just accepts that nobody cares and tries to build things in view of the fact that no one far away cares well i'm glad we finally got over that in the church today <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit more about um, his life after the break and then get into more of his uh, apologetic method too right after the break here on a word that you spoke You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Coons talking about Alfred Raywinkle. Well, we've gone from the prairie up to Canada. Um, eventually, uh, he's going to head back uh, to the promised land and uh, be a professor at Concordia St. Louis. And it's a very interesting time in America and a very interesting time for Professor Raywinkle. Here, So let's talk a bit about him in St. Louis. Yeah, because he gets there um, during the 1930s and his time there is especially the first roughly 20 years because he'll retire from St. Louis in the early 1970s, roughly. So he's there for a long time. But his early time there is during uh, a period when there are a lot of new faculty members, including Walter Meyer, also Richard Kemmerer. And the seminary is beginning to change in certain discernible ways on certain issues. One of the ways in which it's very traditional is that the vast majority of the faculty has little to no engagement with 
the press, the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Um, they're going to, st- they still occupy a very traditional position in a Germanic education system at the top. They're still editing almost every single word published by the Missouri Synod officially. They were the editors of everything, doctoral review for everything. And so Ray Winkle's perspective, conditioned by his life also uh, about a decade as president of St. John's College out in Kansas, which was English district and always a little different from the other colleges, is going to make him unusual on the faculty. And that starts really almost right away in that as America and especially the Roosevelt administration is ramping up getting into war. And you can go check out the book, which is free online, Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace, uh, written just after the Second World War and see that that track that led up to the war. So people can see that at least the administration wants to get into another world war. The American people do not. And there is an organization that was for a brief time enormous, politically enormous, called the America First Committee whose public figurehead was Charles Lindbergh, the aviator. There are two faculty members at Concordia St. Louis active in the St. Louis chapter. One of them, Walter Meyer, will not give public speeches because he's worried about being both the speaker of the Lutheran Hour and publicly known for having a very definite political which, which is Which is interesting because this is pre-Johnson Amendment. So he's actually doing it more out of principle than out of fear of losing yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. It's not an IRS is going to come right. get you type of thing. Right. right. Yeah. The one who is not afraid to speak about why we need to stay out of the war in Europe is Alfred, usually called Rip for Rip Van Winkle, Rip <laughs> Ray Winkle. Um, that's a nickname from prep school days that he had. And so he's up there uh, at a, a certain rally in St. Louis with Lindbergh on the platform giving speeches. <laughs> <laughs> Energy that shouldn't even be possible, you know? Possible, yeah. And so uh, this was your church. And there's a book that he published uh, that we'll talk about later uh, in connection with all of that. What this is going to spin into as America First gets shut down is that Ray Winkle will begin to derive most of the significance of his career as a professor, not so much from what he teaches at the seminary, because he's always sort of an outsider on the faculty, even though he's there for so long, but from what will eventually be called his Signs of the Times seminars. And the listeners may have like a grandpa or a great grandpa who attended one of these. Ray Winkle would go all over the country, often under the auspices of the Lutheran Layman's League, and talk about what he would call collectively the signs of the times, which is he wanted to teach Christians how to interpret what was happening politically, economically, educationally, and to inform them about how, what these things meant, what the Bible says about them, and therefore how to preserve the church. You can see here, this is sort of the, the intellectual or educational version of preserving the church against especially political threats and especially the threat of communism that his father had to do when he was growing up in Northern Wisconsin. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, the, <laughs> the conviction and fire with which, uh, a pastor, let alone a professor in the Senate would be willing to speak on these things without being, uh, too provocative, perhaps a lesson to learn there. Um, and, and <laughs> yeah. they are signs of the times, not signs of sitting on a care- carefully crafted statements for years on end before right. you uh, yeah. decide to release them. Yeah. I mean, something that you note, um, and I think we've said this about what we called the forgotten age before, but I mean, Ray Winkle dies in 1979. So uh, this is within some people's living memory, is that we we had people who were maybe just constructed differently, were not worried about what other people would think about it. Now he paid for this, as I said, on the faculty. He was never given prominence. He was given you know, the first class in the morning and the last class on Friday afternoon and awkward, weird assignments to do. And can you teach this class you've never taught before? And just, he would, he was definitely ostracized. There's no question. Sure. Hazed, if you would. (laughs) Hazed. But, you know, I, it's almost, but but, but it wasn't initiatory. Uh, No, no, it was, it was ongoing. He was mobbed. (laughs) He was, he was. Yeah, but this doesn't sort of dampen his fire. And I think that that comes out of 
a deeper well then than simply, you know, he likes attention because, you know, he didn't, he, he was never as prominent as many others were. Right. And it's just interesting. I mean, he, he's writing on the controversy at that time of the day. It's not as if it would be like one of us sitting down to write a book on the communism of the 19th century. Right. And the, and the, and what the Lutheran response should have been or would have been. Right. He is saying, this is what, the, this is how we should attack this now. Exactly. This is how we should oppose this. You know, it's, it's timely. Right. And necessary. Yeah. And there, there are ways in which I think too, that he, he resembles it just in his life and his interests. He resembles people that would come after him in that. I think he foresees many challenges to the church, um, especially apologetic challenges that a lot of people did not really, because we were living really inside a, a still sort of a German language world, largely in our church's life, did not see coming. So even his interests are, are prescient, even when, <laughs> even when he's wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, well, let's, let's move, let's move then into his um, apologetic work then. Yeah. Um, he, he's going to be reacting to some liberalism creeping into American Lutheranism. Do you think that liberalism is able to creep in because of the German influence? I think that one of the difficulties with the language switch is an incapacity to get out ahead of problems. And that, so it doesn't come in sort of formally, but it comes in because the well, children I mean, are, yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, because that. the children or the grandchildren clash with a world or grow up in a world that their parents don't understand and then that, that the church doesn't even fathom it exists. Yeah. So you the, see it more as right. a generational gap than uh, like, let's say German higher criticism creeping right. in at the academic and academically. Right. It's right. basically just being caught um, not prepared. Right. Because on an academic level, we are well prepared to fight anything that anyone writing or speaking in German is saying. Right. <laughs> We're just not prepared for a lot of other things. We're just not prepared for the, you know, millions of people that we live around. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. To, we're so, not prepared to, uh, you know, reach the nations. Right. <laughs> Including the one we live in. Um, right. Yeah. And so so what what happens is that originally spurred, honestly, by riding around the American West and then the Canadian West and seeing the amazing geological formations just you can see practically anywhere in that that part of the world he begins to be deeply interested in geology so if the, if any of this still makes any sense if people believe he was real while he is founding <laughs> frontier congregations in alberta based out of edmonton he also just takes a wide variety of classes at the university of alberta including what could add up to like an entire bachelor's degree worth of classes in geology so he yeah. has an intimate, if non-professional acquaintance with geology, biology, lots of natural sciences, especially, were a deep interest of his. Somebody's holed up in, in their den with their gym collection right now <laughs> thinking, he's just like me. <laughs> right. Yeah, he collected rocks. Um, <laughs> but what this will eventually issue in is he's reading a man named George McCready Price, whom very few people remember. And the a good history of this by a guy who used to believe these things, but is kind of a mainstream academic. Now Ronald numbers is called the mm -hmm. creationists and Ray Winkle figures prominently in there as a sort of bridge figure between an earlier generation that it especially was deeply into what we would now call creation science. And then the generation that really popularizes creation science among evangelical Christians and founds the institutions like Answers in Genesis and Institute for Creation Research. Ray Winkle comes in between all that. And when The Flood is published, I believe it's 1951. So he's on the St. Louis faculty at that time. When The Flood is published, even fellow faculty members say, no, this is too far. <laughs> six, six days, a few thousand years ago, was Adam riding dinosaurs with like a saddle? You know what I mean? Yeah. But you can see in The Flood both his deep acquaintance with natural science, but also his utter conviction that the Bible is true, not only yeah. regarding the doctrine well, of Christ. And to be fair, he follows yeah. a chronology similar to Luther or Melanchthon. He does. Yeah. Yeah. And they both I mean, have their own dates and they line up 
close enough to that. I mean, the, right. the roughly 6,000 year yeah, right. approach. Right. And so that's, you know, when he writes that book, I mean, it, it could be that you could say, okay, well, you know, your average person in the Missouri Synod believes this, but even some of his fellow faculty members didn't really believe right. it. And so how did they come to that position? I mean, because today you, yeah. could, you could see someone rejecting it going, as we've said in, in previous episodes, well, nobody will take me seriously if I believe that. Right. Or, you know, some kind of, some other clever way to get around that interpretation. How would that interpretation have come to be uh, present in the faculty at that yeah, time? Yeah, that's really interesting because there's a lot, like I said, when we talked about when he came on the faculty, a lot is changing, but nobody nobody really recognizes it. Right. And I think that what's happening is that gradually they are trying to attain a kind of mainstream respectability that will cause them to be embarrassed. So specifically what Theodore Gravener said when the book was published was, this will be very diff- this will make life very difficult for our university campus pastors not not meaning and this is a very missouri synod kind of thing to like yeah. i i personally believe this i just don't want to offend anyone else by saying that well, i do yeah. believe it and hey that's a word fitly meme because we talk about this a lot there's a lot of private confessions and and i and, and i mean in some specific use like this is my personal right theological yeah. conviction i don't you know i don't uh you know dissent from any any of these articles here but right these people do. and so it becomes this well i'm okay and we just have to tolerate what's out there <laughs> right. you can't expect everybody to believe what the bible says right yeah and this is i mean so much is changing and, and ray winkle is part of this too but I mean, one index of this is he writes a smaller book about Bible chronology and the age of the earth and and connecting those two things. And that should have come out from CPH in, say, the late 1960s. But you can just guess from the date why it didn't. It was rejected by CPH and it was published instead by the Australian Lutherans. Right. (laughs) So no one even knows. Does something like Arndt's Bible difficulties get that kind of pushback? Uh, Arndt, see, Arndt was venerable, right? So Arndt is a, is just about a half a generation older right. than he's, Ray Winkle. He's, he's a, a a different good old boy system, correct? Yeah. And so and so Arndt is Arndt is venerable, but um, Arndt and this is something we'll talk about on an episode um, to be announced. Arndt Arndt is the guy that convinces us that modern textual criticism is okay. So there are a lot of moving parts in this, but they're all moving towards greater change and openness in any number of areas. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, so we've got America First Community, Signs of the Times, Apologetics of the Flood. We've got a few minutes left in here. Where do we go from the flood? I want to take this book up because um, people now once again know that it existed. In 1958, Ray Winkle wrote a book called Planned Parenthood. That's right. (laughs) That Planned Parenthood. And this book does not endorse abortion per se. He's fuzzy on to save the life of the mother. So I think that's, that's wrong. Too. I know you do as well. Right, right. What it really importantly endorses at great length, and I think this is notable for Ray Winkle as an unusual figure, but a helpful figure, is that he says out loud something that everyone knew had been occurring, which was not even Missouri Synod pastors by 1958 were having nearly as many children as their fathers or grandfathers had. Everybody knew that. So when Walter Meyer writes about birth control as paganism and for better, not for worse in the early 1930s, understand that people disagree with that. That wasn't just a given when he wrote right. that. Yeah. So this is going to be the most controversial one for a lot of people. And this is probably yeah. the reason why if they recognize the name, they might be one, you know, they might be waiting right. for this point. Right. The issue of birth control right. in Christianity is an interesting one. Uh, one I don't want to do a whole episode on because I'm a prude. <laughs> but, but you know, it's not as if – so here's what happens. You know, it, if we do a Cliffsnose version, it's like, well, no Protestant endorsed this in the main, which is true. No Protestant endorsed mm-hmm. birth control until the Anglicans at the Lambeth Conference 1930. Mm-hmm. But it's not as if everybody said, oh, Anglicans did it, so we can now. The point is that Ray Winkle's saying this is what's more or less been practiced. Right. Now, not necessarily artificial birth control, depending on how you want to use that term. But some form of contraception has been right, right. 
Right. And he's saying, he's making an argument, and you will find the frame of this argument very familiar, uh, probably, is that because scripture does not explicitly condemn contraception, right? So yeah. without a specific divine in, you know, injunction. Everybody becomes regulative principle yep. when it's something yep, that they right. do. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't say that I'm allowed to sing hymns. So, you know, I, 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 can, I can't sing hymns. So that's the idea is there's no divine injunction against these things. Therefore, this is up to Christian prudence. And, you know, people will attribute this to his wife who was raised Methodist and all this kind of thing. And I'm yeah, sure but- that that has some influence on him, but the man certainly is possessed of an independent mind. I think what is interesting about it is that he says aloud in 1958 what we were actually doing. It's yeah. just that no one else acknowledged this. And if you look at something besides Walter Meyer's book or Ray Winkle's book on the topic by Missouri Synod Lutherans, you won't you know, find it. it. And, that's, and that's an interesting historical debate. Is it kept in... Is it kept in the dark because we just didn't talk about those things? Or is it kept in the dark because it's something that they'd rather not have revealed? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're... You know, there still is this general public theology idea of you should be open. You know, God opens and closes the womb. Right. And and yet the life doesn't bear that out. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think that silence permits ambiguity and ambiguity yeah. permits not having to make a clear public statement yeah. on it. And, and it's a very slippery slope to be like, well, the Bible doesn't specifically address this. And we've seen that down to today. Yeah. What what you can do with that kind of approach to the scripture. Right. Right. And you could, you could, I mean, of course the Bible sort of does deal with this though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even, I mean, you, you said it early, you said God opens and closes the womb. Those yeah. are, you know, that's the and, way and to the me, Bible And to me, that's a, a, that's, that's the text. It's not Onan. Right. That's where everybody jumps to Onan. But uh, that, you know, that's a whole other story. And that's, you know, that's an after dark episode, <laughs> but it is. Yeah. But I think God opening and closing the womb, uh, the verses talking about the blessing of children, quiverful, that sort of thing. Th- those right. are the, those are your proof texts. Right. If you can't see what God is expecting here, right. And what and what a blessing means. Right. And so, you know, but again, this is one of these issues where every time we talk about it, there's so many what ifs. Well, what if they have this condition, or what if somebody can't conceive, or what if somebody can't? Right. Okay, we'll deal with those. But in the main, the scripture is very clear. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think the passing away of that is something that Ray Winkle is really only unique in stating. Yeah, but, but the <laughs> problem is he gets he yeah. gets the blame for that because he's right. the first one brave enough to put pen to paper. Right. And to say, this is what we've all, all been doing. Right. He becomes the demon. Yeah, that's correct. And perhaps yeah. not fair. So right. what we're saying is on this subject, you're going to want to go to Wham!, you are, yeah, for sure. But Ray Winkle will explain to you why, if the parsonage was built in the 1950s or after, there are so few bedrooms. Yeah. But if your parsonage was built in 1918, you've probably got six or seven. So <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, before Ray Winkle, you kind of had to read between the lines there. You know. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, uh, all right. Well, we're going to take our next break. We're going to talk about his politics right after this. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz, and we're talking about Alfred Raywinkle. Well, we talked about a little bit more about his life. We talked about apologetics a bit, gotten to the most controversial aspect um, of his uh, career as far as certain theologians would be concerned. 
And now we're going to talk a bit about his politics. Tell me a bit about the world today. Yeah, totally forgotten. 1940, so predating our entry into the war, but uh, the Second World War is already ongoing in Europe and Asia. And it is published by Concordia Publishing House, Ray Winkle's attempt to keep America out of the war. He was doing that uh, assiduously through the America First Committee, but this is his attempt to consolidate Lutheran opinion. And my guess, just based on the enormous percentages of Americans that didn't want to go into World War II, is that like the rest of the Midwest, you know, largely in the Great Plains areas, probably Missouri Synod Lutherans didn't want to go into the Second World War either. Could you imagine if they had Twitter and you've got Ray Winkle and Lindbergh up there saying we shouldn't go to Germany? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 what they said. And the world today is interesting because, like a lot of things published in the 1930s and the you know the very early 40s in the U.S. at least, you you enter a completely different universe. They right. are not. They do not believe that that Hitler is the worst person that ever lived. They believe that. This is an attempt by international bankers and military elites to continue the destruction and self-enrichment that they engaged in in the First World War. Imagine be- being so incredibly right. <laughs> right? I mean, the, the rush of confirmation bias would be amazing um, <laughs> at all times. But what's interesting about the world today is that he's going to predict in there that if the United States enters this, this will be the this will be the death of uh, a lot that is familiar to us, including our constitutional structure. We will never be the same again, and we will get richer, but it will destroy us spiritually. Right. Something that you know, I think you can see Wham saying the same thing on the radio at about the same time. Right, and uh, I mean something not really in the distant past, but something very foreign to us today. And only in the last several years have we begun to see voices right. among confessional Lutheranisms talking like this. Right. You know, to, yeah. to, to say, don't be warmongers. Let's, uh, let's look at the, these vast financial apparatuses and entities and what they're trying right. to do yeah. and how it's all interconnected. And it's good to see young guys stepping up, seeing these things and speaking about them. Right. And uh, it, even if they have to hide behind anonymous accounts, which is we have, we're on record supporting 100%. Just like the founding fathers, man. Yeah. Use your anons. <laughs> we're on your side. Yeah, we are on your side. Uh, and we're not feds, we promise. We promise. We don't glow. I'm just but, very pale. <laughs> but I, I, I think... People that don't glow. That's right. Ray Winkle is picking up on something that has a, a venerable American tradition which is opposition to something, you know, the phrase from Washington's farewell address, but it was in the intro as well in his own writing, um, which is entangling alliances, that it's just right. fundamentally bad for America to be engaged in overseas wars. In addition to that, he does something that I think, I don't know if we said this in these words with Wham, but I, I realized was a commonality between the two of them, is that they take the images, the words and the methods of the Old Testament prophets and apply those ways of speaking to the present day. Mm -hmm. So a part of the Bible that I think a lot of Christians don't know a lot about, or maybe anything about. So not only your major prophets, but also the, you know, the, the 12, the minor prophets, they're going to take those ways of analyzing. So if I see this happening, this is a judgment of God. If I yeah. see this happening, this is a blessing of right. God. Right. They believe in a living God. They're not deists. And many today are functional deists. Right. Right. And so that's something that you're going to, you'll see throughout Ray Winkle if you pick up his books, but World Today and 1948's Communism in the Church, which we'll talk about in a second, those both take, they have all these stats and, and facts and all this kind of stuff, and they take that and then they yeah. analyze it in biblical terms. So what does it mean that we're getting so much richer, but we have almost no children? Right. And this is this is wholly different from a dispensationalist chart. Right. You know, trying to track the day of the Lord's return or something like that. This is men reading the scriptures, understanding them, knowing that God is living and active and that God is blessing and judging nations. Right. And the only way you know what a blessed nation and a judged nation looks like is by going to the scripture and seeing. Right. Yeah. And a very powerful lesson for us to learn today. 
I mean, yeah, yeah. How, I mean, how, how can a call to repentance be issued if I just treat almost the entirety of your life outside maybe church attendance right. as indifferent? Like the fact that you bought this car and you have these countertops and the church of God is falling in and we can't start any new churches, but you have everything you want to satisfy your bodily comforts. You know, it's like, we just don't even touch this stuff. He's willing to do right. that, and he does it collectively and nationally as well as personally, the way Wham did on the radio. Yeah, sometime you know after you know he begins to be aged, we become the Church of the Winsome, and it's not been good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's just like everybody wants a Luther. Everybody says, "I wish Luther was here." No, you don't. You would you would kick Luther out of your church faster than Pastor. Yeah. Or whoever. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you you would run him out because <laughs> you say you want Luther, you do not want Luther. You know, yeah. I mean, Luther. You know, okay. I mean, I you know, full disclosure, whatever. My you know, the job I have, I I have often thought Luther never would have been certified for placement. Never. No, he would be. He would be ran out yeah. as a as a crazy person, crazy man, and and we would have a totally different church name. <laughs> I don't know what it would be, but it wouldn't be that. Uh, yeah. Right. Because Ever, uh, yeah. Yeah, we have enough of Luther recorded to know that he wouldn't have passed Hom one. <laughs> oh, uh, Martin, I don't know if I would say that. You know, you don't know what those people out there are going through. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah, he did. And this yeah. is what he said. This is what he said. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wants to be Luther on Reformation Day, but not right. Everybody you know, wants to yeah. put the everybody wants to put the academic hat on and the Geneva gown for one day, right. and then you know. Go back to Saddleback the next day or something. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, Saddleback and clericals. Right, man. I feel you know that's even kind of an old an old reference now. Well, we're old. We're old men. We're, so. we're old men, especially in the internet age. We're basically right. ancient. They're going to put us on cattle cars soon, and then you know what? We we had it coming. <laughs> that's right. Um, so speaking of Christians being put on cattle cars, <laughs> his. Communism in the church, which you might actually be able to find. I mean, maybe it's a tricky one to find. It should be easier to find than it is, but probably on a books you can still find a yeah. people like Lutherans buy too many books because out of print Lutheran books are the prices are radically inflated beyond what they should be. <laughs> um, someone's trying to keep them from us. Uh, this that's right. The AI demons are buying up all the good books. It's correct. Yeah, yeah. Nineteen forty eight. So right after. Second World War. So he, he doesn't say, sorry, guys, I was wrong. Actually, that was a good war. What he says is that in our country, 1948, so this is, I think Alger, Alger Hiss is still a respectable federal prosecutor at this time. The Rosenbergs have not been caught. Uh, the Soviets don't even have a, uh, a very large or publicly known nuclear weapon. 1948, he says... Operation Paperclip's going well. Operation Paperclip. <laughs> Um, he says, what is coming about as a result of the Second World War is the spread of international communism also in the United States. Now, this was something that he thought would happen in 1940. Yep. He talks about it a little bit at the end of the world today. But what he's saying is this is coming. And the reason that you need to care about it, also published by Concordia Publishing House, is because this represents an existential threat to our civilization and especially to our church. If we don't oppose it publicly and politically, this will destroy us. Right. Um, you know, he's very George Patton this way, except they oh, yeah. didn't get to it. They, except they didn't get to him like they did George Patton right. and, and others. Right. <laughs> uh, the smart guys knew this. I mean, we really, people forget that we allied with the Soviets. And we made them quite powerful with our lend right. program right. during the war. Right. That... Perhaps they would have fallen earlier if not for that. Maybe I'm exaggerating the importance of Lindley's, but they are definitely. I mean, they lose a lot of people in the war, but they are put in a better. They're put in a position to last a bit longer. Right. Oh, oh, no, no question. And I mean, the fact that they had a manufacturing base is as a result of American corporate investment. Yeah, in and this is what I'm saying. Yeah, we, yeah. we. So we've got Lindley's where we literally send supplies. We send supplies even to build factories. I don't know how that's Lind, but whatever. <laughs> And then we allow investments in there. Right. Because we forget that the Soviet Union is not Reagan's America. It's a Roosevelt's America. That's where they're, that's where they're growing and becoming strong. Right. Um, 
at, at least in that period. And they are the enemy. And it, it's, it's not as if, oh, okay, we got Hitler, so these are the bad guys now. Mm-hmm. They were still the bad guys right. in World War II, right. and they were the bad guys before World War II. They were the bad guys from 1918 and before. You know, so yeah, exactly. I'm just saying, Soviets are always commies are always the bad guys, right? They are, and I, you can I, have more than one villain if you want, but they have to be at least one of them, is what I'm saying. Correct. Yeah, I, I think that I think that he knew this, and his desire, and this would then spread through the signs of the time seminars. His desire was really, in a way, somewhat unusual for Missouri Synod clergymen. He his his target audience was largely lay. And I, yeah. and, and I know that that sounds odd because there are plenty of people that have written devotional works and stuff like that, but there are relatively few people in our history. Luther is one of them actually that wrote significant amounts of stuff in a way understandable to and useful to and theologically informed for the laity. And that's part of Roy Winkle's being forgotten because he didn't write a dogmatics book. He didn't write a homiletics book. He wasn't engaged in training the clergy necessarily. He was engaged in making sure that our laity were actively opposed to communism, well, as was well, also Wayne. T- let's talk then. Why is communism... Man, it's just, you know, it, I kind of feel like Charles Coughlin today, and I'm, I'm not even apologizing. Yeah. But why is communism... An existential threat. Yeah, it's an existential. It's an existential threat because it is at its base anti-God and therefore yeah. against His Church. So it's not unlike many other forms of leftism in Western history. It is just uniquely, uh, fervently, and intensively those things, such that wherever it comes into power, it destroys the Church most often violently and openly rather than subversively the way that uh, our way of life has generally corroded right. our churches. Right. Um, you know, I suppose we could even do a, you know, a whole episode on just what the idea, the ideology is, but it's not, it's not as if we're saying, you know, people always hear read into what you're saying that, okay, so you're, you're opposed to communism. So you think that um, child labor is good and we should exploit the poor mm-hmm. uh, quite the opposite. Right, you know, but uh, now's not the time to talk about third positionism or anything like that. But yeah, I, it, 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 that's I, I didn't bring this up, but that is actually sort of part. It's it, it's it's not so much in communism in the church where he's much more focused on what is communism. He brings to bear, you know, contemporary American witnesses to communism. Um, he was a fervent attender of communist political meetings, and and would read all kinds of stuff. And so when he talks about communism, he only uses communist sources in order to do so. He seems to be an owner of the uh, Little Lenin Library, which was like Oxford World Classics for Commies, um, published in New York. So he has firsthand acquaintance with all this stuff. But in the world today, he did say that the reason that our masses are so discontented in Western countries is because we grind their faces throughout their lives. They have no satisfaction in their work and they can't have any. And so he was edging toward what, you know, would now be called, at least on the internet, a third position. Right. Yeah. But, you know, there's a place to talk about that too. And I think that's an important distinction to make, however, that, you know, going against communism and calling it the evil that is, is, is not necessarily endorsing anything else. Right. I mean, it's not, it's, I'm, excuse me, I want to be clear here. It's not endorsing the pendulum the opposite pendulum sort right, exactly. in Toto, yeah. you know? So, um, but I don't want to talk about Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he, he's very clear um, in both books really that, you know, if, if the working man has a sense that the church doesn't care about him, yeah. then don't be surprised when he is a lot, when he becomes vehemently antagonistic to it. Um, because you, pastor, did not show that you cared about anything except your salary and the men who largely pay for it. Well, there's Ray Winkle being human again. Yeah, 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 very <laughs> and, human, yeah. But again, that that is a position that it's hard to reach just from a library. It's one that you reach by being around people right. and being able yeah. to see things for what they are. It takes a, a certain measure of discernment. Right. You know, to yeah. be able to to do that. Right, yeah, I think that, I think that, that wisdom or, you know, salt and light, those are qualities that require 
way more experience than reading. So the guy read seemingly everything, <laughs> seemingly all the time, but he also was famously able to uh, relate well to all different kinds of people. I think maybe least well was he able to relate to <laughs> his fellow faculty members, but um, he he could relate really well to a wide range of others. Right. And, you know, what's more important, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the exactly. gift that Wham has, too. Yeah. And, no question. You know, yeah. is there is a bit of jealousy toward Wham on the on the faculty at the yeah. time, arguably. Yeah. D- is the same thing true of Ray Winkle or? No. Or is he too, he's too dismissed. niche? He's okay, dismissed. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, he's dismissed as irrelevant and they let him travel a lot. He he becomes a world traveler as well as traveling throughout North America. So, yeah, he's just he's just dismissed. And I, I think that's partly because his interests are not identified as traditionally theologically important, right? So he writes a 450-page book that is somewhere in manuscript. If anyone listening to this knows where it is, please tell me. I want to read it. About war, okay? It's just about the (laughs) the ethics of war, whether war is good, whether war is bad, American involvement in war. Because for him, he doesn't see what happened in his very long life. How, How did 1910 get destroyed? He doesn't see these things as any other result than war. And this is something about which a lot of people don't think enough because we're really only taught about slavery in World War II, is that at the time, not only did people in 1940 think, oh, this thing that we're heading into is just like this thing that we came out of, so it's evil and awful and we don't want to head into it. But Mm -hmm. people recognized in 1919 that the men who had left, you know, a farm in Nebraska did not, they, they did not come back the same, that something had been lost, even in isolated rural communities that never came back again. And I think that that is, that is Ray Winkle's deepest experience is the experience of seeing life ripped apart by war. Now he's not in war. He's not a chaplain. He's not a soldier. He's not in war. What he sees in both wars are the disintegration of life at home in all kinds of ways. His congregations closed, school shuttered, things burned, especially in the First World War. And then in the Second World War, there's something that he sees in American society, but he also sees in his fellow faculty members, which is an addiction to mainstream consensus. Hmm. So, uh, you know, this vast majority of Americans are totally fine with not going into war. And then as soon as we get into war, they're watching, you know, newsreels where the Japanese are essentially rodents and the Germans are essentially guerrillas and let's go kill them all. Right. Do you prefer your Japanese butt-toothed or fanged? That was really your choice. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Those are the options depending on the cartoonist. Right. You know, uh, and it just got worse from there as far as this this consensus-minded thing. And social engineering has made it even easier to do. Right. You know, so a couple of takeaways here, probably. One, that there was a time where some big movers and shakers kind of destroyed the quietest position mm-hmm. within the Senate. Uh, second, that going back and reading men like Wham and Ray Winkle is actually quite valuable for our current situation. Right. So we're almost at time. Any final words here on, on Rip? Yeah. His life gets rather bitter towards the end. The biography is produced through interviews when Ron Stelzer is is a pretty young man. Um, If he's not retired now, he's almost retired on a Long Island. And Ray Winkle is um, a wonderful speaker. Um, He was acknowledged by everyone to be a fantastic preacher at very great length. He he really has a, a way with words. So his writing is always interesting and lively. But I think something to realize is that the consensus that he saw get America into two wars and that way that people just go along with what someone is announcing is good or right or true or whatever is something that he sees happening inside his church by the time that he is nearing retirement and then at the end of the 70s death. And that is that his church has changed greatly in its attachment to the word of God, or, or by that time, it's detachment from the Bible as the word of God. And he sees things getting dark. There's a very poignant comment that he made um, to Stelzer 
in the interviews that produced the biography when he said that my father and I never, ever dealt with a case of divorce. We never had that in the church. (laughs) People had problems and they brought them to the pastor and they fixed their problems and they stayed married. We never, neither he nor his father. This is the 1870s down to active, his active pastorate through the late 1920s. We never had a divorce. He said, now everyone is getting divorced and the church is approving of it. So there's a lot of sadness that I see over his lifetime. And that's because I think he saw a lot of things go away. I mean, something that makes me hopeful is that a lot of these things, like you said earlier, are being rediscovered and renovated, whether a position on birth control or a position on, you know, war and international war, whatever the case might be. Revisiting these things gives me a hope that I don't think Ray Winkle had for his church or for his country when he died in 1979. Well, very good, Adam. Uh, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure. You know, we'll be back soon. It's October, so we're going to have some uh, fun stuff coming up here this yeah. month. I'm yeah, sure. So, to it. Yeah, all right. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Koontz. God love you, and God bless. You younger fellows think you are the first ones to ever confront this new theology. Well, you are not. We fought these same battles long ago. And you older men, how can you sit idly by and say nothing when you of all people should know where this will lead us? You are misleading and giving offense and destroying the church for which generations before you have given their lives. Alfred Ray Winkle, at his own retirement party from the faculty of Concordia Seminary, St. Louis.